welcome to part three of the series, A Tribute to Black Motherhood. I'm your host, Andrea, and each week for this series during Black History Month, I'll be joined by a group of brilliant black women as they talk about black motherhood. In this episode, I'm once again joined by my friend, Marcy Alvis Walker and Naya Abernathy. And new to the table this week is my dear friend, Patricia A. Taylor from the popular Instagram account, Some Thoughts From Your Black Friend. This week, the focus of the conversation is on black motherhood and media. Not only do these women share their own experiences growing up and the influence of black mothers in media on their lives, but they also talk about the continued need to have more representation of black women and girls in media today. They talk about raising children under the heavy influence of whiteness all around them and the very real struggle they face as black mothers to keep their children's dignity fully intact. We also talk about the recent book bans, censorship in the classrooms, and the very real need to actually listen to the lived experiences of black women. Listen in to their conversation as they allow us to do just that. All right, ladies, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Okay, nobody says anything. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm two. always like, Take two. Sorry, first? we're ready. We're ready. I'm ready to jump in. Put me in, coach. Put me in, coach. Okay. Redo. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> You're like, I'm welcoming nobody. Nobody is welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Not you, not you, not you. Okay. <laughs> All right, okay. I'm ready. I'm ready. All right, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay, let's go. We're ready. And I also just want to say, I want to thank you guys for just trusting me with your voices and stories. It's really still not lost on me that that's a big deal. I, I know the history of white women silencing and editing black women's voices. And so I just, it's not lost on me the significance that you guys do trust me. So I do want to thank you again for that. Um, Patricia, you are new to the table this week. Patricia Taylor, although you've been on the podcast several times, would you just give a quick introduction to listeners of who you are right now? Because you're always accomplishing new things. So it's probably (laughs) updated since the last time we talked. That is really generous of you to say. I'm excited to be here. I was thrilled to be a part of this series last year. And I was like, I'm going to make it work. I'm going to be on at least a couple of these because it's so important, uh, these conversations that were happening. So a quick uh, reintroduction, hopefully, to your listeners. I'm Patricia Taylor. You can find me on Instagram at Patricia underscore A underscore Taylor and on Facebook, too. I am currently the director of programs for Be The Bridge, which is a nonprofit organization based out of Atlanta, Georgia, that focuses on racial equity and education and resources. I have had a wonderful opportunity to do some writing for Sesame Street and Communities, and I am a co-host for a different podcast, Upside Down Podcast, which is an ecumenical space where we discuss culture, spirituality, and justice and the ways that they all intersect. So maybe there'll be more that'll come out later, but I think that's plenty for me for now because <laughs> we have you lots are, to talk about. You're also working on, on a book proposal. I just have to add that. Oh yeah. I'm very excited. Yeah, that too. That. So that too. <laughs> that is happening. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you for making the time to join us today, Patty. Naya, would you mind giving us another quick introduction? You've been able to join us every week, but if you could just let us know again who you are. Yeah. Hello, my name is Naya Abernathy. I am the founder and public educator over at The Dignity Effect. That is an educational platform for social emotional learning for grown-ups. And I uh, teach on the foundation of dignity. And I'm always happy to be here to talk about, again, dignity in Black motherhood. Thank you for having me. Marcy, if you want to give a quick intro to yourself. Um, I'm Marcy Alvis Walker, and I am a writer. I have a blog. I have Instagram feed. I have a newsletter. Um, Most of my stuff is under Black Coffee White Friends, but you'll also find me at Mockingbird. You'll also find me at Black Eyed Bible Studies. It's a lot of writing, a lot of words. A lot of important words. And as always, we will have the link to sign up for your newsletter and Patreon and all of that. Um, Marcy, I just thank you for, again, the idea of doing this again and your ideas that you put into the topics every week. And this week, we're going to talk about Black motherhood in media. And also, I want to say, Marcy, I love your, it's not Black History Month, but American History by Black people. So we can start going with that too. Oh, you can thank Mitch McConnell for that. He really had me hot that day. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Well, I appreciate the inspiration. And I'm like, yes, from henceforth, that's how it's known. <laughs> <laughs> I 
posting and sharing. I'm like, yeah, I know Marcy did that. Uh huh. Get the message. <laughs> okay, we are going to start with the joy and celebration question, like we did last week, so that everybody gets a chance to answer. This week, the question is, who is your favorite Black TV or movie mom, and why? Oh, uh, the first name that that came to my mind has has to be Claire Huxtable. Just has to be. Uh, I mean, because prior to seeing her and seeing that role portrayed, I don't recall seeing like a positive black female mother role. And I, I loved her intelligence was never downplayed. Her her sense of of awareness of who she was and how she navigated the spaces that she was in, that she did not take any anything from her kids, not her husband, nobody. <laughs> um, and, but also like the love, like, you know, it's so clear, like everything I'm doing is, is out of love for you and my family. And, and really it reminds me of my mom, but I mean, she was like that TV mom, like I, the conversation that Rudy had when she started her period was the conversation that led to my mom and I having that conversation. <laughs> Because I was like, hey, mom, what's, what are they talking about on the Cosby show? <laughs> so uh, I think that it's got to be Claire Huxtable for me. Ah, <laughs> uh, Patty, you stole mine. That's okay. That's, that's, there's there's some other ones. The first, so I, you said Claire Huxtable and I was like, yes. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to say her too. So who's who else? Immediately, Harriet Winslow. I spent every Friday night with Harriet Winslow, you know? So for those of you who maybe are not 90s kids listening to this, something really amazing happened on ABC in the 90s is they had TGIF and there were typically about four shows, step-by-step, full house. There was the one with the uh, Smollett family was on it and I can't remember the name of it, but there was like a fourth slot where there was shows that kind of went in and out. But one of the shows that was always on was Family Matters and I loved Family Matters. And one of the things I loved about Harriet is she would get with you. And I felt that like, I'm like, you are like the aunties that are around me. You are, you could be my auntie or my mom, but you also could just be my, you know, my auntie down the street. Um, And she had this very, she wasn't overly tender per se, but she was honest and she really cared. I really felt like she cared about her kids. She cared about them being well in all different ways. She would bring some truth, even the way her she she delivered what she was saying, but she was also funny. And so I just, I loved the range of her as a human and how she showed up in that role. So that is after after Claire Huxley, I would have to say uh, Harriet Winslow. Just want to say I agree. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I agree with both your answers. And the thing that I love about both of those answers is that it's not just that they were mothering and nurturing to their own children, is how many children came in and out. Like you had cockroach coming over to the Huxtables. You know, like they're the the way that they gathered young people, period. I think it is, you know, like Steve Urkel was constantly over at the Winslows. I think that's so typical of many Black households. That is a very typical thing. I went in a different direction because um, although I am so obsessed with Rainbow from Blackish, I just love how she goes around saying I'm a doctor. I think that's just hilarious because I do have Black friends who are doctors and they do say it a lot. Like they want people there. It's like, I got this I'm a doctor or you know well girl you know I'm a doctor I'm like girl yes I've known you forever I know you're a doctor so I love that that's a real thing but um I went with a show that's just really moved me it's David Makes Man it's on the own station and it's by the writer of Moonlight the movie Moonlight and it's about a family living in the projects and the mother Gloria is a recovering drug addict. You know, she's working a paycheck job, like a job where, you know, she's making barely minimum wage or just over it as a waitress. And she's hopeful for her son's future that she she's trying to get him into the right schools. She's, you know, wanting him to do better than she did. So she's making all these sacrifices, right? And part of the sacrifice is that she she has to entrust that her her kids can care for themselves while she works. And something about that story just I think about that character and that character, her name's Gloria, and I think about the mom in the movie Moonlight 
who was just despair, just the despair of this mother. And I want to just wrap my arms around those moms who I know are with very few resources and their only hope is in the children that they bear. Like they hope that their children, so they hope their kids will do better. Like there's this one scene, I was a, I was a single mom, a, a divorced single mom for a few years after my divorce. And I had a lot of help because I I had that kind of job where I could take off if I needed. I had health insurance. It was lean times. There was a lot of lean times, don't get me wrong. But I always had some sort of community that could help me out and a job that understood that I was a single mom and cared about that. But I don't know what it would be like to have a job and not be that. So to see stories like that, like moms who who may not have that same thing, because I love, while I love, love Claire Huxtable, best hair of any mom ever. And I love Julia from Diane Carroll, one of the first black women to have her own sitcom. I think sometimes white America takes all black moms and compares them to these moms who have so-called made it. So... I just want to lift up Gloria today. She's she's beloved and she's she loves her boys. We're going to dive into the topics. Patty, I'm going to start with you unless Marcy, you want to. Do we want to go with representation in children's media or where do you guys want to take this conversation? Uh, I would love to share something um, okay. just based off of what Marcy just said. And, you know, this is honestly, as I'm sitting here, I'm really frustrated thinking of all that's happening within our schools and with the feigned outrage over CRT, with the book banning, with uh, here's let's dial a number and call and tattle on somebody who's teaching about black history, people calling and writing into Alabama because black history is CRT. Like I'm really frustrated by it all because everything continues to be framed and centered around whiteness around white supremacy around how they want to portray history like we can't even have an upstanding tv mom without that somehow being used and abused by whiteness to say oh see she made it what's wrong with all these other lazy black mamas why can't they all be like oprah why can't they all be like Claire Huxtable? Why can't they all be like Michelle Obama, even though they hated her? But I mean, she has more money than me. So why can't they all be like that? And and then when we actually like portray the realities of the range of humanists, that is our reality, just like it is with any group of people, then that's that's used against us, too. See, there's another black mom who's not she can't even do right. Oh, she can't even take care of her kids. Oh, she's on that government help. She's da da da. And, and I'm like all this time and energy to run from flee from a, a race, avoid, eliminate the truth. Like I've just had this reoccurring thought as I think about being a mom of three daughters we're in public school and we are going to be moving in a few months. And I'm like, wow, I'm going to need to make sure that like when, where we move, there's a school that is going to be open to telling the whole truth and teaching accurate history on top of everything else. You know, is this going to be a school that's caring for their neighbors and knows that COVID is real and, you know, all these things. But I'm like, wow, like this is something that I have to add to my list when I think about what my children's future looks like. And I have these memories I haven't been able to really, like I've thought about like writing a post about it. Maybe that will come after this conversation. Who knows? Um, maybe it won't. But I just keep thinking about being the lone black student for years in all my classes in a white suburban environment. And the one time anything that has to do with black history, and I'm putting up the quotation marks for, <laughs> for the audience who can't hear me, but anything that has to do with black history is just talking about slavery. And then the whole class turns and looks at me. Where is the outrage for that? Where's the outrage for the isolation that the little black girls feel in their classroom when they are only taught that their history is enslavement and everyone stares at them like they're supposed to have the answer. And then we move right along. 
you know, instead it's, oh my goodness, what if little Tommy feels bad because we tell him a true story about what the nation did and then everything gets changed. Everything gets, gets changed because of it. So I'm just in like a a really like raw, frustrated place right now because I'm going to keep doing the best that I can do. (laughs) You know, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. You know, I, I'm going to continue to, to share and create content. Like it was such an honor for me, such an honor to be able to write a course with Sesame Street and communities that is specifically for racial justice. It was a partnership that they have with USAA specifically to be shaped around communities where there are a high number of military families and for providers like teachers and caregivers and providers to feel better equipped to have these conversations in their classrooms and in their spaces. And so it's not that I'm without hope. That's not it. But it's just the uphill battle and the disregard for the lived experiences of little Black children everywhere. Black parents don't get a voice in any of this. Anything you read, every article you see, it's what do parents feel? They don't mean Black parents or parents of color. They just mean white parents. How are white parents feeling? No one's asking how this is making little Black children feel or little children of color. So I just dove right in. Kind of went all over the place. But (laughs) Marcy, I would love some thoughts on that as well. My head is about to fall off from nodding so hard in agreement with you, Patty. Thank you so much. The thing is, is that there are lots of Black parents who, who have opinions, but the only opinions that we'll see are the ones who agree with whiteness. The ones who, for whatever reason, believe that there is this upward mobility that you can be, if you're good enough, if you're kind enough, if, if you play by the rules enough, they'll let you in. And so, you know, you have Black parents going on Tucker Carlson and saying how CRT would damage their Black child. And I try not to get too bitter with those Black parents because I'm pretty sure that my parents probably would have felt that way. They would have felt that we don't need this becoming a thing and my kid just doesn't need to have to worry about this. I'm pretty sure. So... I tread lightly because I do want to hold those black lives as being as valuable as my own, but they're being used by people like Tucker Carlson and, the, and, and people who are trying to ban black lives and have no interest in their life or their children's lives as how we should all be. Um, they're, they're like Trump had a handful of black people help write the 1776 project in which they only discussed black excellence. And that's the take that they take on that. But the thing that I wanted to say with Patty is that it starts, it started so long ago with the media. It's not the first time that we're seeing the bands that we're seeing on books, the bands that we're, and we'll start to try to cross over into other things as well. But um, I was blown away a couple of years ago when I discovered Roosevelt Franklin, the Muppet. He was a Muppet on Sesame Street. I actually have his album. We bought, like, my my husband tracked down the album for me. And he was an African-American puppet who lived in a Black community who went to an all-Black school. And he would come into the classroom and he would kind of do this, like, um, Holly Holly Pete Robinson Pete, or is it Pete? I think it's that way. Her dad played him. And he would do this like scat thing into the classroom and he would get every the whole class's attention and he would lay down some knowledge for them about their own identity. He would say, this is Africa. This is where we come from. And it, I just fell in love with this Muppet who I never knew existed. So I started doing some research on it. And Sesame Street was so very proud of this Muppet because it's a pu- at the time it was a public non-for-profit public broadcasting, all these stations across the South and a couple upstate New York um, said that they would not air, they would not support this kind of programming, that it was bad for Black people to see themselves like this. Because obviously, if a Black person is being Black, that's bad. They only wanted a simulated representation of Black people. So it had to be people like Claire Huxtable. It had to be people like Julia. It had to be even Good Times. They could, I mean, Good Times was the whitest projects in the inner city black community that I ever saw. I mean, seriously. In what world does 
a family, a whole family living, black family living in the projects. And what world does that mother ever have a part-time job or can stay at home because her man's too proud for her to work? What? That's nonsense. Like, are you insane? But because that's how white people viewed it should be. That's how the show was presented. So you had um, all these white parents writing in about a Muppet, y'all. You have to remember this. It's a Muppet who's about six years old. He's about first grade kindergarten. And they are literally writing in and saying they are offended by this six-year-old Muppet. A Muppet, y'all. A Muppet. I can't, I can't stress that enough. Who is too black. Too black and that it's going to be bad for black children. And so you think about that and you think about, okay, well, if they will protest a Muppet and they'll protest a skinny legged, can't weigh more than 30 pounds, Ruby Bridges sitting next to their child in class, what else will their protest, you know? And so I think about that. I was thinking about how one of the very first things that they did when slave ships came in to New York dock, not just down south, but in New York. One of the things that they would do in New York, y'all, so you can't just say it's the south, it was all over. They would take the names and it was New York's idea, the slave trade business in New York that decided, yes, we should get Africans who can't speak each other's language and that way they can't rise up against us because that had started happening. Because people think that black people just got on the boat, got off, went to the field, never said a word about it. But no, they, they tried to fight back. And when they realized that if we take away their language, if we divide them into certain good ones and certain bad ones, we give certain ones a really good life to aspire to, that will keep them from rising up. And also, if we take away their names so they don't have the identity of their Black. And I think that's exactly what's happening right now. I think the more that Black people are seeing their identity with things like the 1619 Project. There are a million books out, not a million, but there, there are a lot of books out like um, with wonderful illustrations like Kadir Nelson's illustrations and a lot of things. And you have Vashi Harrison and you have all these people making these beautiful works of art where Black children are seeing themselves for the very first time in a mass production way. We've never had this before. We had Snowy Day and we had Corduroy. And that was pretty much it when I was growing up. That's who you had. So now these Black children can have all these different kinds of representation we we have like because because of them there's loads and loads and loads of things that woke homeschool there's so much stuff out there and it makes white people terrified because in essence it's giving us back our name it's giving us back our identity and to them that means well what will they think of next they'll probably rise up against us and we're not even thinking about that we just want to be human within ourselves we don't have time to worry about your institutions we know what those are about but they feel when we become governors they feel that as much as they felt nat turner's rebellion really it's as threatening and as violent as that to many of those people sitting on capitol hill that's what it feels like 1619 project feels like a slave revolt to them. That's what it feels like. And it's crazy to me that we that we still have white parents who buy into it. Crazy to me. Yeah, I really I want to hear Naya's thoughts on this, but I just I if I could jump in real quick. I I just think it's so it is a wild idea to think like how dare black people have agency over how they want their own stories to be told. I mean, I'm sitting here with two other incredible black women and there are others who were featured through this series and every single one of us is so very different so why wouldn't we want to see something that represents each of us in the storytelling in the reality for our children why should that be confined to something that only white families and white children get to see and experience a range of, of, of who they are and where and spaces they can be in and where they fit in and where they belong and, and what's available to them. And I read something on probably on Instagram, you know, that's where I 
that's where I hang out mostly. <laughs> um, but I think it was something that was so true because as we have these conversations and we've had them before, it's not like everybody loses, which is, which is the, like if further is mind boggling. Oh, it was Shannon Martin. She, she wrote a post about this. Uh, how little do you think of your white children that you think that your own kids can't handle this? They can't handle hearing the truth. They can't handle reading stories where, where the protagonist is black and where our stories are being told, you know, having, having these, you know, different books and media isn't just great for black children, but for white children to see, Oh, we're not the hero of every story. Oh, we're not the ones with complexities. We're not the only ones who live life in the, these different ways. So how how little do you think of your, you're, you're willing to put your power and, and this control that you are desperate to hold on to, even over the ability that you feel your own family and children have to, to adapt, to grow, to be intelligent enough to say, oh, this is actually real life, you know? Oh, yes. <laughs> And your money, resources, everything. It, it's just, Naya, I just wanted to pop in and say that, but I would love to hear your thoughts on this. And especially with the work that you do, thinking from like the parenting perspective specifically and, and, and how, how this impacts our kids. So, so I have young kids. I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old. And um, I am still... <laughs> I'm still waiting on Disney to show up. I appreciate the Moanas and the Encantos and I appreciate those a lot because at least they're brown. But Disney refuses to touch Africa. Disney refuses to touch a Black American princess. Now, I know we have Princess and the Frog, but... She was a frog the whole movie. She was a frog! I know we had soul, but like there's always this shape. And we had Africa and it was the animals. It was the animals. And then then when Beyonce did Black is King, this retelling of the Lion King, people were so angry about it. People were so angry about it. And they went and got people who were African, like, you know, from the African diaspora to actually oppose it. And some of those musicians had to come up and say, that was one of the best experiences that I ever had. That was some of the best work that I ever did. But because, you know, I think we're so jarred by our own image in a free sense, like we're so jarred by it that sometimes we do some controlling because I don't know what that is, but I think that it's it's a sort of bookkeeping that comes out of supremacy. So mm-hmm. what we'll do is we'll just be like, when there's like something, like I'm just like, there are lots of black things that I don't like. Mm-hmm. You know, like there are lots of things that don't speak to me, but they speak to somebody. But And I'm not out here complaining about the white trash that I see, like not white trash and people, but I mean, it's like, I'm not complaining about the hangover. It's not my jam, but I'm not going to take to social media and protest it. But people did that for girls trip. Really? I mean, yeah. just don't watch it. It's not for yeah. you. Yeah, but it wasn't made for you anyway. It wasn't made for you, black Christian woman. That's fine. Go watch the war room or whatever else. It just wasn't made for you. But there are black women out there who that movie meant a lot to. And who are we as black women to say, you can, no, that's, that's this and that's that. Like, I'm just like, I feel like this, it's this like, it's this kind of intel training that comes from the um, work camps where we basically learned how to tell on each other and how to keep each other in line, you know, with how we should look and how we should present. And so when someone wants to present something that resonates with a certain group of Black people or all Black people, there's always some Black elitist who's got something to say about it. And so we had that with Black is King. And it's just like, we have got to quit doing that. Because let me tell you, if Adam Sandler can make all those terrible trash movies that he can make, I'm like, I don't think as far as trans representation, I get why people have a problem with Medea, but I'm like, let Tyler Perry make his other trash movies. He can make his other trash movies. I'm just like, they're not for me, but they're for somebody. And they represent 
a vast variety of people. And we don't have to just go tattling on each other and taking each other down because we think that someday they will look at us and say, you're white enough. It's never going to happen. Yeah. It's never going to happen. Never. While Disney has done some, I'm using the air quotes too, sprinkles, some, some things, quote unquote, Disney will not commit to a real life in flesh black and or African princess. And here's what I found out that in, in 2018, they announced that they were working on a live action movie starring an African princess that was supposed to be directed by a Nigerian American director. 2018. There has been no nothing, no boo, boo, nobody's been cat. We ain't heard nothing from Disney about nothing. And it's 2022. The fro we got two Frozens. We've got, you know, there's all of these other things. It's like, okay, so at what point will I be able to show something to my five-year-old daughter that is a positive, accurate representation of this Disney, of, of a Disney princess? And some people might be like, why are we having the princess come? Like, why are we even doing that? I get that. And some people are just completely written off Disney. The whole theme of it is off. I, fine. Kind of like Marcy, what you were saying, like, if it's not for you, it's not for you. If you're not showing that to your kids, fine. I know who I'm married to. <laughs> and I know that I, I grew up with Disney. And while everything was not great, thing I loved about Belle was she just like devoured books. She loved books. I still want a library like the library in the castle. And so I have not decided to write the entire Disney franchise off completely. What I would rather do is hold Disney's feet to the fire and be like, do it, do it. Make an African princess who's at, like for real African. I've seen you honor like in the Moana movie. And I know everybody wasn't in love with all of the way they did things, but I've seen you honor indigenous language, all the tattoos Maui had, like all of these very traditional things. I've seen you honor it in brown communities. Give my daughter something where I could say, baby, we don't know all the things, but this is a representation of us. And it's a good representation of this is where we, this is a representation of who we are. That in particular is infuriating because at this point, you're not doing it on purpose. It's not like, oh, we're going to get to it. Or it's on purpose that you are deciding we will represent all of these other people in these other ways. But anytime it, when we give you a piece of it, it's going to be like you said, Marcy, a simulation. It's not going to be you for real, for real. And so then I have to do the work. Patty, I know, you know, Marcy, you might've had to do this too. I've had to do some of this work of my daughter loves Elsa and she ain't got Elsa's hair, but child, she wish she had Elsa's hair. And I'm like, baby, that's not your hair. And so having to, that dissonance between who she is seeing and who she's drawn to and I could say some I could say some positive things about, you know, Elsa's, you know, character and how she grows and her arc and all those other things. But my daughter's five. Like she's she's just like, oh, she has powers and she sings. She's dances and walks around and she got a dress and she's got the hair. And I'm like, I want a Disney princess with an afro. I want a Disney princess with some cornrows. I want a Disney princess where like in street clothes, like, or in something very traditionally, like from the African continent represented well. And I want her to be the heroine. And I don't want it to be wrapped up in a love story when some man comes and saves her. As I think about this and what's been, how we're represented in the media, as a Black mother, I then have to swoop in and my, you know, my husband does it too, but in Black mother, I'd have to say, baby, it's okay that you don't look like her. It's okay that this is not part of your reality. You are still beautiful, worthy, enough. I have to go in and do this work and I have to make sure that whatever she's consuming isn't consuming her soul. I have to do that work because I can't depend on a media outlet to make sure that my babies are represented well. Again, there could be an argument like, why would you depend on that? And that's not the point. My point is, is that people other than Black children can go to school, can turn on the TV, can watch a movie, can read a book. White parents are not worried about how they're represented. There are some even communities of color who are better represented. And we still can't get something that is accurate enough where I can say in a mainstream 
media that also doesn't have all of this pushback where it could be like, we can just, we can have something that is really ours, that really belongs to us, that represents us well. And Patty, you know, you're asking me about some of the parenting work that I do when I talk about parenting from a place of dignity. I have to do that work anyway, right? All of us have to make sure that as we are in the process of discovering who our children are, that we're honoring what we're discovering about who our children are and their complexities of being human. And then I have to add in the racial piece and I have to somehow, and I haven't figured out how to do this without it breaking my heart every time. I have to somehow prepare my child to go out into the world and without completely spoiling it for her and having her being distrustful or like scared or whatever, I basically have to prepare her to be hated and completely misrepresented when she goes out into the world into spaces where she isn't in a black community or a black school or whatever, because it's built for, for that to happen. It's built for her to feel that she doesn't belong, that there's something inherently wrong with her because she's a little black girl with kinky curly hair. And I have to come in and say, no, no, baby, your worth is inherent. Your dignity is intact. I don't care what they say to you. And the work that that we have to do as moms, because we can't fully protect our kids when we send them out clearly to school, I have to come back and put the pieces of her heart back together because I refuse. I refuse to let you shred the dignity that my child carries. It's not going to happen. Not on my watch. So many things. <laughs> but the thing that you're, you're right, there is this, especially with our, our female born children, our daughters and our non-binary children. I have a non-binary kid who struggled. We didn't know until much later what a lot of that struggle was, but also struggled because they, I'll just tell you two quick stories. One was there were a group of girls, popular girls, all blonde, because they were the only black female presenting child in that grade, the only one. No, in the high school, there was one other child who was mixed race. And there was one other child who was like little, like pre-K and like a, a, you know, like a school that's not tiny, but certainly there was just no representation for, for them and no teachers. They only had one black teacher that whole time at that school. And that teacher quit because of problems, wanting to do things and have more representation and them saying to wait, 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 wait. But anyway, one day, three, these three blonde girls, the popular girls that my daughter so desperately wanted to, at the time, daughter, my child wanted so desperately to be part of, to be welcomed, to be accepted, right? They actually came to them and said, which one of us do you think looks most like, is most like Beyonce? And my child was like, how am I not even in the running? Like, how am I literally not even in the running? But they felt that because of their blonde hair, I guess, I honestly don't know. And then another time at the lunch table, a popular boy that all the girls liked. <laughs> yes, correct answer. Beyonce is black, so none of y'all. They were at lunch, and the popular boy that all these girls liked, he was from a higher grade, was going around taking a poll of which race was the most attractive, of rating the races on attraction. And black, of course, came in very last, and dark-skinned black people came in below black. So Beyonce came below any white person who was they considered beautiful. Asian, any Asian character that they felt was beautiful came in before, like the Beyonce that they all wanted to be like, you know, so go figure. I think what that says about the, the representation isn't just about what our kids see, it's also about what white kids see. Because when all they see and are told is that this person's beautiful and that person's beautiful and this is what a princess looks like and this is what good mothering looks like. It all comes in a nice white package. It's a mom who stays home. It's a princess who is beloved for her long hair, for her creamy white skin. That translates also to little white boys who then go out and say very toxic things in a lunch classroom directly to a black child's face 
rate the races and not because they think that they're thinking, well, you obviously would agree we are better, but looking. And then one of the girls, this is the girl who is the daughter of that, who of the people who founded the school. So all these people are with clout in the school. Cause y'all know this is how high school works. Don't play like you don't. So this is the child that everyone wants their, their kid to be friends with, right? And what she says is important because her parents started the school and run the school, right? They are the heads of the school. And she says, I just think white people look better than black people. I just think we're just more attractive. Dead on to my black child who I'm not trying to even be funny. My child is fire, beautiful, gorgeous, human being inside and out. And I'm not even trying to be funny. That child couldn't light a candle to what I brought into this world. And I'm not even being vain when I say that. That is just the damn truth. Which is why they were probably saying the things that they said. They probably couldn't wrap their mind around the fact that my child could be so fierce and so amazing and so clever and so together in their world. That did not make sense. And because I built into my kid certain dignity, they didn't bow down to anything that wasn't undignified. They often did the reports, The they always took the role in debate class on the side of the oppressed. And these kids really didn't know how to handle that. And so they were faced day after day with attacks on their very character and how whiteness was better represented in the world. And these kids make sure that they remembered that. That is... Mm. I mean, that makes my stomach churn because of all that too many of our kids have to endure what we had to endure. And those issues get swept under the rug because the thought process is that, well, as black people, we don't really deserve the dignity in the first place. So the real issue is this book over here that's going to tell the whole truth. I had two things I wanted to share when I was talking about Disney and and I think Marcy, you had shared something in our in the chat about the Little Mermaid that was announced a few years ago. I wrote something about that because that's when, oh, it was July of 2019 and Halle Bailey of the sisters, Chloe and Halle was announced to be the new Little Mermaid in the forthcoming live action. You know, they were doing the string of live actions. And honestly, I'm not sure where that is now. I don't know if it's, you know, pandemic, if it's other reasons, but that was in July of 2019. And I wrote something about that. I just want to read a little part of it because it, it's, it comes it's, out in 23, just so you know. Oh, okay. Great. Great. Fantastic. Okay. Cause I'm looking forward to that. Like I, I was able to show my, my daughter. And even though I do have biracial children, uh, my daughter with the, her caramel complected skin, like, look at this girl like her skin is similar to yours and she actually has a mermaid that has caramel complected skin and look like this is going to be the next little mermaid uh but the fact that that announcement received the level of backlash that it did is not surprising but it doesn't ever take the sting away and i just like just a very very you know small snippet of what i wrote at the time that is so true to to where we are today i said i know better than to stay actually <laughs> i think i titled it like it or not, Black Ariel is, is a part of our world. But I, I shared, I know better than to stay in the comment section for too long. But in mere moments, I saw one of several memes drawing comparisons between pictures of the lovely Hallie and different Disney animals. One such side by side was captioned, this is perfect for you. You will never be Ariel and pointed to the emperor turned llama from the emperor's new groove. A Twitter user wrote, us white girls who grew up with the Little Mermaid deserved a true color Ariel. And another individual sounded off with the petition because she won't let Disney ruin our childhood memories. Hashtag not my Ariel was trending on the 4th of July, which I think is a message in and of itself. And racist content was flying in the Make Ariel White Again Facebook page, Facebook group, excuse me. And the list goes on and on. An incredibly talented 19-year-old black girl with beautiful brown skin has been compared to animals accused of co-conspiring with Disney to somehow ruin childhood memories. And the narrative continues that being white means you deserve a constant reflection of yourself in mainstream media. And I think of the you deserve component. No one is eliminating that version of The Little Mermaid. I still watch that with my kids too. It's always put up against this either or. Like if you have this, we're losing something. If you get this, you're taking away from me and what I have. And it also just struck my my mama heart just to, to know like the weight that, that I'm carrying and know that 
in a space which I'm looking to change and I'm grateful for the opportunity, but in a space that is a predominantly white space, when I am the one without my white husband going to these functions, going to these events, taking my kids to the school, taking them to ballet, taking them to whatever, you know, classroom thing when, you know, pre-COVID regulations and whatnot. But I am always, always, always aware of the weight of what I'm carrying, of not only how they will be treated and how they will be viewed because, you know, mixed race, biracial or not, they don't look white. (laughs) You know, they're not white. But what association will they have because of me? Like, how will they be viewed because of their black mother? Like if they are, if I'm bringing them to their recreational activities and I know they're the only black child in those classes, oh, I'm going to be on time. You know, women, women run late all the time because we're juggling a whole bunch of stuff. Like we're like, come on kids, you know? Oh, of course you have to poop right before we leave. Okay. Yeah. I get the snack. Oh, I'm going to going back to get, you know, get the water. Like we just run late because life is happening. But I'm so aware of the fact that is that really what's going to go through the thoughts of these other white moms? Oh man, motherhood is tough. Oh no. It's, mm, oh, that black mom, the one black mom. Oh, her kids are late again. Oh, she's late again. You know, I'm thinking that this just happened a week ago when my kids got to wear pajamas to school and they have like these thick, long sleeve onesies on, but my darling husband, (laughs) and I do appreciate it. He was working from home that day. So he got them ready. And I was just going to physically get in the car and take them. It wasn't until we pulled into the parking lot, I realized they had no jacket. And I definitely overreacted. We are not in, you know, snowy land. We are in Georgia. It was cold though, but I immediately said, I I can't be like, I'm the face that they see. I do pick up and I do drop off. I interact with all their white teachers. I cannot have them. Their hair needs to be done. They need to have their jackets on. They need to have everything because there's too much of this association of, you know, oh, well, the black mom isn't such and such or the black family isn't is so and so. And I was really, really upset. And then later on, there was actually an email and it wasn't addressed to anybody, you know, a bunch of kids forget jackets and stuff, but it was just a very general, hey, just a reminder, you know, let's make sure we we're all bundled up. It's flu season. You know, we're still trying to be safe with COVID. But I got very, very upset just at the thought that what if they viewed my kids and viewed me in that way? Because the reality is that's exactly what happened. That's what happened to my mom raising my brother and that's what has happened to me in situations where I have been treated very differently in these spaces until my husband showed up. And then it was like, oh, you're in in church that happened in school that happened and recreational activities that happened. Oh, your husband's white. I guess you're you're actually okay. Patricia, you are you are speaking something that's so, so deep right now, because that's the thing. It's the misrepresentation of the black mother in media that has made it that we are working extra hard to make sure that our children look cared for. And it's not a crazy thing. I know that there's gonna be some white moms out there, some white listeners who might be thinking, well, that's crazy. There are more black children taken into child protective custody based on things that wouldn't necessarily be the case for a white family. And that's fact. That is not untrue. And so you have movies like Losing Isaiah, where you have this narrative of who's the best to take care of this poor black child. Or you have stories where the white family has the little black kid who comes over because they're just so, it's so much nicer at your house. They ran that narrative on a little house on the prairie. There was a little black boy, it was played by Todd Bridges, right? Todd Bridges was the little boy in the big woods. And you know, it was all about how he just so wanted to be like the white people. And then you have things like different strokes. What happens? You mean to tell me there was no other family members who could take care of those boys in that community, right? But no, they're better off. Wouldn't you rather? And I remember being a foster parent and they struck it home so often. You have to remember that these children, it does not matter how your home is or how nice your home is or that you have food in the fridge. None of that matters. This kid's culture, be it a white culture or narrative, whatever the culture is in that home, that kid will prefer that culture because it's the one that they were born to and the one that they know. Now, I'm not saying that there's no place for fostering, of course there is, but I think when we think that we can heal trauma with whiteness, and I've been so guilty of this, where we can, where we can just, if we get them into the right school, 
right? If we get them into the right church or the right youth group, youth groups are good at this. Like we're going to go, we're going to go into the inner city and get these um, black children and we're going to fellowship with them. When we feel that we can mission trip our way into racial justice, I'm sorry, I have a huge problem with missions. Because the narrative there is that there's something wrong with blackness that only whiteness can fix. And not just only whiteness, but white Christianity can fix. And where does that come from? Where does that storyline come from? It comes from way back. The first narratives that were written down about the black experience in this country did not come from black people. It came from white people. And it came from stories of Uncle Tom stories of Negroes who are happy to be enslaved that those were their best years, that they needed whiteness in order to protect them. And we perpetuate it in the ways that you're talking about, where we have to prove that we can care for ourselves and we can care for our own children, that we have the ability, that we know how to put a coat on our kids. The same thing. It's like, how many times has your kid gone out looking crazy in the world? Because that's what kids do. And as a black mama, you'll just be like, oh, God, you didn't go out with your hair looking like that, did you? You didn't go out. They just did a hilarious episode on Blackish about this very thing. Dre is like checking out each kid as they go off to school, and then the baby comes down and he's got ashy knees. Oh my gosh, y'all. Black babies can't go out into the world with no ashy knees. They cannot. They cannot. They cannot. Not only are they tough, because to white people, ashy looks dirty, okay? But to black people, it's like, who are your people that they let you come out with ashy knees? So, you know, the way that we are represented in media truly does matter because we're not the only people consuming it. So mm. when we are misrepresented in the media and when whiteness is misrepresented in the media, because let me tell you, there's no way in the world that area would have been white, y'all. It was in the Caribbean. How? In the world, do you get a white mermaid in the Caribbean? Had it been on the shores of Norway? Sure, but it's the Caribbean. She's got a calypso singing and dancing crab as a, ba a best friend. They are in the Caribbean. And we get a white redheaded mermaid? The same way we get a white Jesus. Girl. <laughs> I, I mean, that. That, yeah, that right I mean, we get a white Jesus. I mean, that's what I Again, I have a big ask for those of you listening and learning from these amazing women. I'm asking you to donate what you can, even just a dollar for each episode you listen to, to pay these women for their time that they are giving us to educate and share their experiences. Money can be given via Venmo to my Venmo address, Her Story Speaks, and all the money given will be divided equally among the guests for this series. Also, make sure to check out the show notes where you can find the guests' Instagram accounts and support them via Patreon and signing up for their newsletters.